Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. Our host for today's episode is Joseph Boot. So, for this last session, we're going to go to Mark chapter 3, and we're going to read Mark 3, verse 7 through 35. Mark chapter 3, 7 through 35. Mark 3, 7 through 35. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so the crowd would not crush him. Since he had healed many, all who had had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, those possessed fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God, and he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Then he went up on the mountain and summoned those he he wanted, and they came to him. He also appointed twelve. He also named them apostles to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the twelve. To Simon he gave the name Peter, and to James the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John he gave the name Boenerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebul in him and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rebels against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. On the other hand, no one can enter a strong man's house and rob his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he will rob his house. I assure you, people will be forgiven for all sins And whatever blasphemies they may blaspheme, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. He is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, look, your mother, your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, so Mark's gospel is the 
experience is the record of the experience primarily of the Apostle Peter uh, of the ministry of Jesus. And it's very, Mark's gospel is very fast, it's very quick, moves from one thing quickly to another. And in the early chapters of Mark, Christ is identified as the Holy One of God who is claiming all of life, all of creation for God and his service. Christ is the Holy One of God who's claiming all of life and all of creation for his service. So Mark shows us that Christ is the, the last Adam, the truly obedient son, the mediator of creation who has now entered into his creation and he's exercising total lordship over it. So he's doing, Mark tells us how Jesus is doing one miracle after another. And yet you have this strange situation where his followers, his family, and the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, are very slow to recognize who is amongst them. And that is, of course, because people's hearts, as we've seen this week, are hardened to the work of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this passage makes clear that we are actually prisoners. We're prisoners of the enemy of our souls. The Bible calls him the devil, Satan. And Christ has come to set us free, to set life free. And the gospel is about the fact that Jesus Christ has the power to set us free from the prison in which we're in. Now, if you're a Christian, when Christ saved you, he saved your life and everything about you. He saved your life and everything about you. So before we um, look at this, uh, what the response to Jesus here, and we see this slowness of the, the disciples, we see the slowness of the crowd, we see the slowness of the religious leaders, try and put yourself in the shoes very quickly of the people that were first listening to Jesus because they were seeing something unfold in history that had never been seen before. Here was something truly unique. Here was something new. Here it is, something astounding. You see, if you've grown up in the church, you've grown up in a Christian home, maybe you've been to Christian school or even a home school, you're familiar with the gospel. You're familiar with the gospels. And we're looking back. We're looking back at the miracles of Jesus. We're looking back at the ministry of Jesus. We have the benefit of all of this hindsight. So we say, what's the matter with Jesus' disciples? What's the matter with these religious leaders? Why can't they see what's going on here? But our hearts and minds as believers have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is the Son of God. But this, as I say, is the Apostle Peter's experience in the Gospel of Mark, really, 
of this encounter that he has with the unfolding of what we've talked about this week, the kingdom of God. His encounter with the unfolding of the kingdom of God. And nothing like this has really ever been seen before. The friends of Jesus, the family of Jesus, didn't understand what they were seeing. They knew he was somebody special. Mark's account reveals he's the Holy One. He's the Son of Man. That is, he is, the, he is both God and man. That's really what the Son of Man language means in Scripture. But for, for Jesus' own family, for his brothers and sisters, for his cousins who eventually end up following him, uh, for the teachers of the law, he's Joseph and Mary's boy. Isn't he the carpenter's son? He grew up over here. He played with our kids. So you must never forget when you're reading the Gospels that Jesus is fully man. He is fully human. Yes, he's fully God, but he's fully man. And so the thrill of the Gospel, actually, as you read through Mark, is this discovery that the disciples and Jesus' family have is the identify the the true identify uh, identity of this man Jesus Christ the reason that they didn't recognize him immediately for who he was is that here is somebody who is holy in the service of God the father and therefore he's unrecognizable because nobody had ever seen that before not Moses not Elijah not Joseph Certainly not Jonah. There had been nobody, no human being ever in the history of the world like this before who was fully in the service of the Father in total obedience to the Holy Spirit, redeeming life and bringing it back to the Father. Remember the bemusement of the disciples in the next chapter? Question that they asked. Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? That was a genuine question. How is is this possible? Even if they were getting a glimpse of the notion of Messiah, you know, a deliverer for Israel, a man in a boat commands the sea to be still. Who is this? Now, despite the fact that Jesus is not recognized and properly acknowledged for who he is initially, the crowds do recognize there's something different about him. So Mark tells us that his fame is spread throughout the region. People from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Tyre and Sidon, they're all thronging him. So The pull of the kingdom, even though they don't fully understand what they're seeing, is very, very strong. The attraction of the kingdom of God is very, very strong. And he's on the shore of the Sea of Capernaum, and the crowd is so great, the sick are trying to press forward to touch him. Why were the sick trying to touch Jesus? To get healed. People were just touching him, and when they touched him, they were being healed. Remember the most famous account of that in the Gospels? 
Yes, I mean, Jesus commands him, but who actually reached out and touched him? Isaac. Right, the woman with the issue of blood, who is bleeding internally. She presses through a crowd, touches just the cloak of his garment. So you can imagine that that's a pretty, pretty uh, attractive person to be around. So he said, had to say to his disciples, this is a dangerous situation. Keep a small boat ready so that when we get thronged by the crowd, we can get on the boat, push it slightly out from the shore, and I can continue speaking to the people without being crushed. Jesus was a man. He didn't hover over the crowd. He said he was practical. Have a boat ready so that we can push out from the shore and we won't be crushed. And when the sick were being healed, also unclean spirits were crying out and saying, you are the son of God. They realized, these fallen angels realized that he was the manifest grace of God. But, he, but notice that he actually tells the demons not to make him known. Does that, that seem strange to you? It wasn't just the speed of his ministry. I'll tell you what it was. It was the fact that Jesus Christ, as son of man and son of God, as the holy one of God, the holy one of God cannot be revealed by that which is unclean. The unholy cannot reveal properly, adequately the holy. It's the Holy Spirit who makes Christ the Son known. So he told the demons to be quiet, not because he didn't want people to understand who he was. He was to be revealed, though, by the working of the Holy Spirit. So what you're seeing in the Gospels is a gradual unfolding of the identity of Christ, and he wasn't going to be declared by demons. Now, what does he do next? Look at verse 13. Since he's come to redeem all of life and to be king over all of life, that means people. But how is he going to reach all the people? Makes an interesting decision. He actually decides that he's going to focus his ministry on 12 people. And I think um, Nathan said there was maybe a, you know, 35, 40 of us. Jesus goes on the mountain and he calls the people that he's chosen for a special service. Because the Lord Jesus knew that a particular personal relational contact was needed with a small group, which is impossible with a vast crowd. You can't have an intimate relational contact with the probably 50 or 60,000 people or more that would have been gathered at the feeding of the 5,000. Because that was just the men that were counted. What about their wives and all their children? People had big families in those. There's a lot of people there. You can't have a close relationship with all of those people. So in order to win people back to the Father, he knew he was going to use a people that he would call for himself. The transformation of life was to begin on the inside and then work itself out. And they were called. There's two parts to their calling. That they might be with him is the first one. That they might be with him. And the second part is that he might send them out to preach, to have authority, the text says. So to, to 
declare, to make known the gospel of the kingdom with authority. So this calling actually, and this is what's most important about it, is the disciples were being called to a particular office. Not going to the office, called to a particular kind of responsibility, authority, and accountability. They were to occupy a particular office. Actually, they were being restored to an office. Now, to fulfill that office, you, you can't serve God unless you've been with Christ. And we've been emphasizing throughout this week as we've done devotions every morning with you, and you've heard from different pastors and teachers this week in devotions, that if you really want to serve God, the first thing is you need to be with Christ. You need to spend time with Christ. We hope we've reinforced that enough. In the book of Acts, Pharisees actually recognize when they hear the disciples preaching, after the resurrection, it says they took note that these people had been with Jesus. Because they couldn't understand how they were preaching with such wisdom, such authority. And yet they hadn't been to all of their learned schools. These were peasants. These were fishermen, mainly. They were unlettered. They were unschooled. And so it says they took note. These people have been with Jesus. They're speaking with the same kind of authority. The Christian life of service to God always involves these two inseparable elements, being with Jesus and being sent. That is being called to an office and sent out in terms of God's mission, the reconciliation of all things to God. Now, there must have been many people, of course, not just these 12. We know for a fact, for example, there there were women that traveled with Jesus too, even though they were not appointed as apostles. In fact, wealthy women funded Jesus' ministry. Money had to come from somewhere. You can't just travel around with no money, nothing to eat, nowhere to stay. So wealthy uh, women actually funded the ministry of Jesus. And there was a purse, you remember. There was so much money in that purse, actually, that at one point, Jesus tells some of the disciples to go out and buy food for 5,000 men and their families. There must have been a significant amount in there. And also Judas was stealing from it, and nobody noticed. So, you know, the image of Jesus as a pauper wandering around uh, unable to put any bread on the table is not accurate. His, his ministry was properly funded. Could talk more about that, but I won't right now. But the people that were with him, can you imagine the unforgettable days that they must have spent with Christ? I mean, you might think you've had, I hope you think you've had a good time this week and the the time you've had with each other. And hopefully you'll remember this week for for a long time to come. But imagine what it must have been like to have been with Christ, see him heal the sick, open the eyes of the blind, raise the dead, speaking and teaching with authority. Imagine, Imagine what it must have been like, what a privilege that was. But if I were to say to you, we're just as privileged today insofar as Christ is speaking to us now by his word. Wonderful book called Promise and Deliverance. This is the second volume by de Graaf. He says, when we hear the word, it becomes just as intimate for us as it was for those people among the hills of Galilee. 
Then we belong to the people for whom he came and to whom he gave his word. Well, Jesus knew that he couldn't be everywhere all at the same time. He couldn't speak to everyone. He couldn't, wasn't going to travel the globe and heal all the sick and all of the oppressed. So the kingdom is birthed in a community of faith. This is what the calling of the 12 is all about. The birth of a community of faith. To extend the kingdom of God and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. So he appoints 12 apostles. And their task is to go first through Israel and later to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. But they were daily with him, learning about and witnessing the reality of the kingdom of grace for themselves. So here was actually the beginnings of a new people of which you today are part. Because Christ is described in scripture as the last or the second Adam. He's the head of a new people, of a new race, Jew and Gentile, male and female, barbarian and Scythian. He's the head of a new people. And these 12 were to be the foundation of that new nation who would be gathered now from all the nations of the world. The world. So Christ was preparing them for a task. And he sends them out, look at verse 14 and 15 in the text, to pull down Satan's kingdom. He appointed the 12 and he gave them authority to drive out demons, to destroy the works of darkness. Now, pause just for a moment, let's to consider the implications very quickly of this calling to be an apostolos, to be a sent one in the service of Christ, to be part of the foundation of a new humanity. We've talked about Christ as the redemptive king to restore something. So he, redemption, think about all the words in the Bible that, that sort of describe salvation. Regeneration, renewal, restoration, reconciliation. Re, re, re. So what is being restored? Well, we're being called back to something. It actually presupposes, doesn't it, that something has actually been lost. To restore something, if, say, uh, you know, or if we find this T-shirt. Who's, has somebody lost a T-shirt I heard earlier? A sweater? Now, if we find it, it's restored to the person. It was lost. What's been lost? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 8, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers, brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So because of sin, we've talked about the fall in the Christian worldview, because of the separation from God and the deformation of our lives, we are being conformed now to the image of his son. He's called us, 
justified us and he's glorified us. So Paul is speaking actually about the restoration here, the Christian calling as the restoration of the image of God in us in Jesus Christ. Because that's the goal, to be conformed to the image of his son. What does Genesis say? Whose image are we made in? The image of God. Jesus is both son of man and son of God. So we're being conformed back to the image of God. We're being conformed to the image of his son. And he's going to have many brothers and sisters. And you're one of them. And that's what Jesus says at the end. We'll come to that in a moment, at the very end of the passage. He's going to have many brothers and sisters. He's calling out, he's establishing a new family, a new human race, under a new Adam, a new head, from all the nations of the world. And he's going to start that family, that community, with these 12. And then he's going to have many brothers and sisters. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, look at this marvelous text. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man made of dust. Who's that? Adam. We will also bear the image of the heavenly man. The man from heaven. And who is this heavenly man? Well, Paul tells us about him. He is the image of the invisible God. We're being renewed in knowledge, he says, according to the image of your creator. According to the image of your creator. So human beings don't simply have the divine image as something additional. In that sense, it's not a choice. It represents our very makeup as believers. And actually, even the unbeliever is made in the image of God. And even though that image is deformed, it's now being, in Christ, we are being conformed, we're being transformed back to the image of his son. And this is what's happening to the first disciples called by Christ. They're, they're first to be with him, and then he prepares them to be sent out in terms of this mission. In every aspect of our life as human beings, in our humanness, we are imaging God. We're reflecting him. That's what it means. Sometimes when people, Christians, hear this language of the image of God, they start thinking, which bit of me is the image of God? Is it my soul? My mind? The Bible's actually not, talk, is not saying that you are a finite replica of God. There's a creator-creature distinction. It's saying that we are to reflect his will, his purpose, his character back to creation. We bear his image. When you look in a mirror, the mirror bears your image. It reflects your image. So we will image God either faithfully or in an unfaithful way. So Christ as the truly obedient son, the last Ab Adam, he represented, he represented, he represented the image of God perfectly as the first of many who he would now call his people, his kingdom people. So we are made to reflect. We're called as creatures to mirror and echo the will and purpose of God back to creation. You want to know what God is like then? You look at the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, the origin of this language of image of God is probably drawn from a language uh, regarding ancient coinage, which was stamped with the image of the ruling monarch. So even if you look at coinage today in Canada, whose image do you often see on the coinage? Queen's image. So the idea of, the, of a stamp, of an image on, on a coin, is that it represents the presence, the authority, and the concerns of the sovereign over that domain. It represents the authority, the presence, and the concerns. And it keeps it in front of people all of the time in all of their economic activity. And so whenever we are... In, uh, whenever we are in God's creation, we are meant to represent, represent the presence, the care, and the sovereignty of the king. We are stamped to represent the sovereignty, the presence, the authority, the purposes of the king. To image God is to be, in, a, in another word often employed by the Bible, his ambassadors. What's an ambassador? Oliver. Right. So an ambassador represents the sovereign authority of another power. And, and uh, we have, what are, the, what are the places called in other countries where, we, where a very large house where the ambassador usually goes? An embassy. An embassy. And an embassy is considered the sovereign territory of the foreign nation. Now, on a quick side note, God alone has the prerogative of making an image of himself. You know, we've talked a lot about idolatry during this week. And one of the commandments, anybody tell me which number it is? You should not make for yourself an idol. Yes, the second commandment. Why is God so opposed to making an image of us making images if we try and create a, 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 another image we distort the what the, the, the we, we we distort the nature of god himself so we're making something we're actually tr falsely representing god but there's another reason ian yes god has already made an image of himself and he's happy with it god's already made an image of himself it's you so if you go making other images, you're actually trying to remake God and man. You're creating a, a false God and then distorting. Remember we saw in the apologetics lecture, we then distort our humanness. We deprecate it. This is why our culture today is attacking God's image bearer because by trying to remodel man, it's constructing its own image of God. But in communion with God, we are the image. So the image of God in us is a directional, not primarily a structural idea. So you shouldn't think, you know, is my foot the image of God as well? No, it's, it's, a, it's the direction of our lives, not our physical structure. In what way is our life directed? 
It's decisive for all of our relationships. So the image of God, language of the Bible, coincides with the call to obedience and kingdom service. This is what uh, Jesus is really getting at, what Mark is getting at in this gospel. When, you're call, when he was calling those disciples, he wasn't just saying, oh, you know, I want a few of my buddies to travel with me because we have a good laugh. I'm sure they did have a good laugh, by the way. Um, but it wasn't just, oh, I want my besties to come with me. What he was calling them to was a restoration in their lives of the image of God. And that is kingdom service, to represent, to reflect back to all of creation in every area of life, God's will, God's character, God's purpose in and through you. That's why we're being conformed to the image of his. We're being conformed to be like Christ, who was the exact representation of his being. So all this means the call to follow Christ is a call to be renewed in service. So that we use all those God imaging powers that we have as human beings. And they're very, very powerful. We use all of those gifts and powers, not in distorted and corrupted ways, but by grace, because of the transformation of our hearts, they, that process of imaging functions as it was created to function. If you don't serve God, then, you see, I, uh, idolaters and people who make idols aren't just those who carve golden carbs, make statues. Not to serve God, the living God, implicitly is to be an idol maker because you're serving another purpose and therefore you're imaging an idol. You see? So if you do not serve the living God in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are actually serving another God. You're imaging an idol. You're serving another purpose. Now, what Mark tells us in this chapter is that it's this very thing, this idolatry, that makes us prisoners of the first great idol maker who denied that we were made in the image of God, who denied that we were made to image God in all things. And who was the first great idol maker? Yes. Has God really said, you'll not surely die. You, you, you can be God. You can be as God. And giving into that, we made ourselves prisoners of that power. And it is from his power that Christ therefore frees us when he calls us to serve him. And that's why when the kingdom is being declared there in the, in the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, you see all of these unclean spirits, all of these demons manifesting themselves. He did not call the apostles to escape the world but to image God in their humanity by service to Christ in the world. Remember I said that when Christ saved you, he saved your life and everything about you. So he didn't say to the disciples, right, excellent. We're on the mountain. I've called the 12 of you. Let's make a monastery. Oh, we'll stay here and pray the rest of our life. Well, we can, let's withdraw from the world. Let's escape the world. Let's go out into the desert. Let's go up on the mountain and let's stay there. 
It's interesting that Jesus' ministry is the opposite of that idea of the Christian life. I mean, if you read Mark's gospel, it is action-packed. Every verse is filled with activity. This is sometimes our misconception of the Christian life. Remember, we talked a little about so-called holy orders, this false dualism, where holy orders were, well, if you became a monk or a nun, then you're really serving the Lord. Because you've withdrawn from the world and creation into a spiritual zone of reality. I'm not saying that the monasteries didn't do anything good or of value. They did. But they were rooted in a misconception of the calling of the Christian. This calling of the apostles, then this list of names, is much more than Jesus selecting his favorites for travel. He's calling them to be image bearers, to be office bearers, to hold an office. And to hold that office that we all hold today as Christians is to be an image bearer of God and to fulfill the the creation mandate or the dominion mandate to rule and subdue and have dominion in the earth in obedience to Christ, to take creation and turn it into a God-glorifying culture, to take all that God has made and turn it in obedience to God into a God-glorifying culture. So there are three offices that the Bible says that we occupy as image bearers of God, called to apply God's word in all of life. Do you know what those three offices are? Can anybody tell me? Three Ps. That's the clue. They all begin with P and there's three of them. Actually, they don't all begin with P, do they? But we can if we call it a potentate. Prophets, priests, and potentates. We are prophets priests, and kings. Paul the, uh, uh, Peter, the apostle, says, you are a royal, you are a kingly priesthood. So in the garden of God, our first parents were set there as kingly priests to minister in God's creation. That's the image we're given in the Bible. That's the image of uh, the holy of holies in the temple. And Peter says that like Israel, we who are in Christ are a kingly priesthood. And we are prophets also because we speak the word of God. So we're prophets, we're priests, we're potentates. Now, the theologians would say we are vicegerents. We're not, we don't rule in the place of, that's a vice regent. We rule alongside. We're vicegerents. So we are under God, and Christ's rule as believers becomes our rule in the earth. We're co-heirs, we're co-inheritors. So Christ restores us to this threefold office that we are prophets, priests, and kings. As such, we serve God and others and steward all the riches of the cosmos. That was Abraham Kuyper. Brilliant. He said, we steward all the riches of the cosmos. What does to steward mean? Ben. Yeah, to take care of, to administer, to administrate. We are, in a sense, the administrators of the world in Christ. Our office as his sent ones is not just a function. It's our personal, it's our communal identity. Now, if you're going to do that, you need authority. 
Because you might think, oh gosh, this is the most arrogant lecture I've heard all week. How are we prophets, priests, and kings with Christ's authority? Well, this is why we read in verse 15 that he sent them out with what? To have authority. It's Christ who sends us with authority. And that includes power over all spiritual darkness. We are all given a delegated authority as kingly priests in our service, in our witnessing, in our parenting, in our homemaking, in our studying, in our vocations, in our business. This office that we're given is a trust from God, and it's our authority is only valid as we stand under God in his authority. So we're limited by God and the jurisdiction of the other offices. So when it says we're prophets, priests, and kings, it's not about self-aggrandizement saying, oh, aren't I so important? This is an office of service under God to live in obedience. And we're sent out to free life, not to crush others, not to dominate others and put others down, but to liberate. The apostles are called and sent with authority to serve and to free life, not to crush others. And that's why we're given a diversity of gifts. Everybody here has gifts from God, and there's a great diversity of those gifts, and we're called to use all of those gifts, whatever we've been given, in the service of the restoration and the reconciliation of all things to God. And that means that as we do that, as we live in obedience, we are plundering Satan's house. We are plundering his kingdom. The image Jesus uses is, is of tying up the strong man. That's the authority we have. We tie up the guard of the house, Satan's kingdom, where he keeps people prisoner. Christ ties him up under his authority, and he sends us in. He sends us in to plunder the house. Everything that the devil had illegitimately claimed for himself. Now, very quickly, let's wrap this up. With his apostles now, after that incident, Jesus goes home. He goes home. So he's called the apostles, and it says then they went home. He didn't stay up on the mountain. He went home. And Jesus and the apostles are so busy, it says in verse 20, they didn't even get time to eat. They were so busy with the kingdom work. The Holy Spirit is urging the work on, but his friends and his family, they don't understand what they're seeing, and they think that he is some kind of extremist. They actually say he's out of his mind. Jesus' own family. Now bear in mind that eventually, Jesus' own brothers become leaders in the church. Now, can you imagine, I know some of you are siblings here, accepting even for five minutes that one of your siblings was the perfect son of God, the redeemer. You see, the fact that Jesus' own cousins eventually and brothers believed on him is one of the most dynamic proofs of the identity of Christ. His family, though, and his friends at this part time don't understand what they're seeing. They think he's losing his mind. What's the point of it all? And you see, this is what happens when you are gripped by Christ's calling to be his apostolos, to be his sent ones. If you commit yourself truly to Christ and his service, people will think that you are extreme. 
What did you go to the Worldview Leadership Camp for? That Ezra Institute, they're way out there. They're a bit extreme. I mean, they think Jesus is Lord over all of life. I mean, that's a bit over the top. I mean, maybe he's Lord in my heart kind of a thing and in heaven, but it's not Lord over, surely. I mean, that's a bit, haven't you gone a bit far? What are you going there for? Why have you come back with all these ideas about uh, law and politics and education and the arts and all the vocations and family and everything that this is belongs to Christ and that he's Lord over them? We should bring them into submission to him. That's all a bit extreme. Can't you just, you know, say your prayers and thank Jesus that you're going to heaven when you die? Jesus' friends know he won't be made king by the people. This is why they don't understand, you see. He's refused people making him king. He's already the king. He's not leading an armed rebellion. And yet he won't stay hidden. So they don't get it. What, what, what are you doing? We're not raising an army. We're not rebelling against Rome. You won't let the people make you king. So what is the point of this? Didn't make sense to them. You can understand it. They'd never seen anything like this before. This is a movement in Christ from the Father to the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. They couldn't even conceive of what was being unleashed in history. You know, you're sat here today at the Worldview Leadership Camp 2,000 years later because of this they thought Jesus was a bit extreme and his disciples were over the top. It's changed the entire world. Well, in the story, since his movement bore no resemblance to other movements, his family and his friends thought it was abnormal, it's bizarre, and they actually says, the Bible says, they set out to restrain him. How many of us have tried to, at some point, restrain a friend or family member in their devotion to Christ, in their desire to serve him, lest they be thought a bit peculiar or a bit embarrassing? And the kingdom movement does seem like madness. If we do not know Christ and that his Holy Spirit is leading all of life to the Father, and sanctifying it to God, dedicating it to God. People didn't understand the dedication of the temple. They didn't understand the meaning of the temple as representative of the dedication of all of life and all of creation to God. At any rate, his family and his friends at this point, they don't trust him anymore, and they want to go and restrain him. And even worse, the religious authorities who come down from Jerusalem They've got a problem, you see. They can't deny his miracles. They've been face-to-face -face with the grace of God, but they need a counter-argument. How, how, how do you argue against a man who speaks peace to the storm and people press in to touch him to be healed? What, what are you going to say? As a religious leader, they needed a counter argument. How could they secure themselves against this revelation of the grace of God to render all of life in total service to the renewal of all things? Well, their solution 
was to slander the revelation and credit Jesus' miracles to Satan himself. Their answer was a blasphemy. He has Beelzebel, and by the rule of demons, ruler of demons, he casts out demons. So they thought, I know, we'll end the movement by saying everything he's doing is actually the work of the devil. That's why it's so powerful. Think about the patience of the Lord Jesus at this point. I know you're showing me patience in these last five minutes, but think about the real patience of the Lord Jesus. Dealing with people, you're the son of the living God. Before Abraham was, I am. And you have to listen to people. You don't have to. You do listen to people saying that everything you're doing is the work of Satan. So Jesus tells them a parable, really. He says, well, look, a kingdom divided against itself will fall. If the devil opposes the devil, how's his kingdom going to stand? That's civil war. The nation is coming apart. You see, there's only two principles that are active in the world. And they are of grace and rebellion. That's it. Righteousness and unrighteousness. Service of idols. Service of God. Within the structures of creation, in other words, there are only two directions. Service and worship of God. Service and worship of the creature. Remember that. Structure and direction. All the structures God has made are good. but We can direct them rightly or we can be rebellious in every aspect of life. The kingdom works that Christ is doing are actually manifesting that he's overpowered Satan. The Pharisees couldn't do these things, but it shows that Christ is stronger in order to plunder Satan's house of all its vessels. He says to them, I must have conquered the strong man and continue to conquer him. As how could I do all of these things? How can it be Beelzebub? I've tied him up. He's bound. That's the only way Christ can snatch people from his power and send them out to be his servants in his authority to do the same. So in verse 28 through 30, which I won't expound, he pronounces his woe on the denial of his identity and his spirit. And when the scribes saw the reality of the gospel of grace in Christ, they deny it. They attribute it, as we've said, to unclean spirits. And that's a blasphemy, he says, against the Holy Spirit. If throughout your days you attribute the work of Christ to the work of evil, and you, and you actually maintain that posture in your life so that that's the, as though it's the work of the devil, if you call light darkness and darkness light in your heart, you blaspheme God, you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. When people then in cultures that have known the reality and blessing of the gospel of grace begin to call evil good and the gospel evil, when the work of the Holy Spirit is called hatred, sickness, evil, and an abominations are declared to be righteous and clean, that culture is in the grip of a depraved mind. It's very dangerously close to being handed over for its blasphemies. That's where we are culturally. 
well, the concern of Jesus' friends and relatives about the kingdom and their inability to control the situation is such that there's one final thing they're going to do. There's one last thing they're going to try. So the accusation of the Pharisees doesn't work. Jesus, with his parable, shows them their ideas are nonsense. What's the last resort? Tell his mum. Tell his mum. Maybe she can stop him. Tell his mother. Look at verse 31. And so they come to try and fetch him. And that shows at this point, Jesus' own mother, as well as his brothers, didn't fully understand who the Lord Jesus is and his father's kingdom business that he has to be about. Remember, Mary not fully understanding Jesus in the temple as a boy, speaking about the kingdom of God. She treasured those things in her heart. And even with everything that Mary knew, she didn't fully understand yet all that was going on. And as they arrive, as his family arrive to, to restrain him, well, the crowded house they're in, they can't get into reach. They can't reach Jesus. They can't get to him. And so when they arrive, this message is being passed on from the edge of the crowd. You know, being whispered all the way to the front until it reaches the people that are closest around him and they pass on a message. And they say, your, your mother and your brothers, they're here, they're looking for you. What did Jesus do? What, what, what was he gonna do now? Would he allow this to resist the kingdom work? Well, what we do see throughout Jesus' life is that he honored all of those important relationships, all of them. In fact, even at the cross, Jesus is taking responsibility for his mother. Do you remember what he did? So he said, John, Take my mother into your family. Take responsibility for her now. Make sure she's looked after and cared for. So Jesus honored all of those relationships. But all such relationships have to be sanctified in the kingdom if they're not going to interfere in our lives with the coming of that kingdom. In other words, it's only in sanctifying those relationships to God that the kingdom really comes. In other words, you have to hand them all over to the Lord. Christ has to come first, in other words. He must come first. If you allow your friends, your colleagues, even your family to hinder you from Christ and service to his kingdom, Jesus is actually clear elsewhere. We're not worthy of him. And we can actually use friends. We can use family. We can use schoolmates. We can use uh, colleagues and neighbors and so on and our various relationships as an excuse for not giving the whole of our life to Christ and walking in obedience to him because we fear that we might be rejected or we may be censured in some way, or we might lose out in some way. And so we hold back. But Jesus shows us actually that the only way to see God's grace at work in our families and among our friends is to ensure that those relationships find their right place by setting everything apart to God. So we honor those relationships, but we never let it interfere with our office as image bearers and servants of the King of Kings. Jesus actually shows in his answer that the tie of faith is the strongest and most intimate and abiding tie of all. 
that your fellowship in this world stands in light of that communion. So what does he say? He says, looking at those who sat with him, he says, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him. And said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. In other words, if you image God, if you're one of those restored to office, restored to, be a, to, to reflect the image of God, you're a child of the King of Kings in the last Adam. You are a brother a sister of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You are part of the family of God. And <clears throat> that's why uh, the life of the church and our Christian relationships are often the most deep and abiding of all ties. Most of deep and abiding ties are not blood ties. It's, it's wonderful when blood ties are there as well. That's special. But anybody who's here who's got non-Christians in the family knows that those are not the lasting and abiding ties. The most deep tie of all ties is the fact that as those who are in Christ, we are brothers and sisters of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We are the, he is the first of many brothers and sisters. He's the firstborn from the dead. And we're going to follow him out of the grave. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. So if you want that kind of fellowship that comes by faith, there's no communion greater. And that's a fellowship that abides forever. Scripture says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. And that's it. That's the kingdom of God, doing the will of God. And it's to that purpose that he called the apostles. And it's to that purpose to conform you to the image of the Son send you out. That's why he's calling you. And since doing his will is life and freedom, we are sent out to plunder Satan's house and bring the life and freedom of the gospel. And I hope you've seen this week that that restoration is cosmic in scope. It's every area of life. Every aspect of Jesus' ministry in his calling of his co-workers was putting the kingdom of God on public display. So let's close with this quote from Gordon Spike because it's a wonderful thing. This, te this text in Mark 3 has helped to show. He says this, what I've described to you about the kingdom, should put an end to whatever privatizing inclinations are left in us. Kingdom commitment settles not only questions of personal devotions, church attendance, and favorite hymns, but also questions of lifestyle, educational choices, career decisions, organizations we join, and causes we support. It is a total agenda. And listen to this, this is worth writing down. Nothing matters but the kingdom. But because of the kingdom, everything matters. Nothing matters but the kingdom. But because of the kingdom, everything matters. So it's the kingdom rule and reign of Christ that really matters. Nothing matters but that. And it's because that matters that everything else in your life and in this creation matters. Couldn't be summed up better than that. 
Nothing matters but the kingdom, but because of the kingdom, everything matters. And I hope that's what we've learned this week, that we are servants, we're sent ones, we're citizens of that kingdom that defines our place in the world as image bearers. And we have this glorious task of plundering Satan's kingdom and setting life free by the grace and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called out servants and citizens of the kingdom. And that defines who we are.